you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Hi, this is Dan Miller. Welcome to this edition of 48 Days Online Radio. Now, every week I gather lots and lots of questions submitted by you, the listeners, about real-life things happening out there in the workplace. Now, you know, if you're a regular listener, that I see work as one component of a successful life. And as much as I talk about it being very important and not aligned with what we want our life to accomplish and on and on, it is simply one tool for a successful life. Now, that being said, when we realize that we live in an integrated whole, there are components of our lives that we have to also be making deposits of success in and have to understand what's important to us in other areas. Now, because of that and because of my own background, I get a lot of questions that really are more theological in nature. And I know that that's an important part of defining work that matters. In 48 Days to the Work You Love, I lay that out as an early premise. That understanding how God has gifted us uniquely, and in as much as we can understand our purpose or our calling, that is an important foundational piece for then moving into work that is meaningful, purposeful, productive, and profitable. So today I'm going to take a little bit of a turn. I get so many questions that deal with these more theological principles. I mean, a lot of us have been shaped by even the denominations that we grew up in, in a way that it's hard to separate that out. We realize as adults sometimes how much we were shaped by the early teachings that we had that were not just career and financial teachings, but were more theological or more philosophical. So today I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about some concepts that I think will be helpful to many of you rather than just addressing the day-to-day questions. This is a little bit of a change, but I, I hope that you'll bear with me. I'm going to title today's podcast then, Know Thyself. Now we know that's a familiar phrase from Shakespeare, and I'll come back to that in a little bit. Let me just kind of start off here by telling us, you know, John Maxwell is known for his books, his seminars and speeches on leadership. In a recent issue of Success Magazine, where John has a column every month, he talks about the two greatest days in our lives. John says there are two great days in our lives, the day we are born and the day we discover why. I like that. The day we were born and the day we discover why. Can you identify both of those days in your own life? I want to kind of set the stage with a short story. Theologian John Dunn tells a story about a group of Spanish sailors who reached the continent of South America after being at sea on a long and dangerous voyage for about four months. They happened to approach right at the headwaters of the Amazon River an expanse of water so wide the sailors assumed it was just a continuation of the Atlantic Ocean. Now, the Amazon River is a really big river, the biggest in the world. It contains over 20% of the Earth's fresh water. During rainy season, 
It expands to 24 miles wide inland where it opens into the Atlantic Ocean. It's 202 miles wide and it discharges 8 trillion gallons of fresh water daily into the ocean. But these Spanish sailors didn't realize that subtle change in the water. They had spent months knowing they couldn't drink the water in which they were traveling. I mean, any experienced sailor knows that drinking salt water will kill you. Although it didn't look much different and the change had taken place very slowly, now they were right on top of the largest quantity of fresh water in the world. And we're told that with that nourishing fresh water all around them, some of those sailors died of thirst. Now that picture serves as a metaphor for how I see many people in the workplace today. They've become accustomed to work being drudgery, a bitter pill, maybe even a curse from God, something to be endured, a necessary trade-off for a paycheck, the salt water that life has dealt them. They know work is not to be fulfilling. They eagerly look forward to Friday. I mean, we know the phrases about Friday. Thank God it's Friday. Or they look forward to retirement when they can leave that stinking job and do something they really enjoy and care about. But at the same time, They're sitting right on top of the greatest opportunities for fulfilling work the world has ever known. I mean, think about it. Companies are desperately seeking people who understand their areas of competence and are ready to make a clear contribution to what they're trying to accomplish as a company. With our shift from production work to knowledge work, it's never been easier to transition into freelance or independent contractor status, providing more time, freedom, and income potential. Being an entrepreneur no longer requires a big chunk of startup capital or even a bricks and mortar structure. So what do I tell people? Now, you may be among the group who have contacted me. You know, where are the best opportunities? Where are these companies that are hiring? What are the 10 hottest business opportunities or franchises? No, I don't go there. But knowing even those things can be a band-aid solution. Those can be a temporary solution to what you think your challenges are. What I'm likely to tell you is this. This above all, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the day the night. Thou canst not then be false to any man. I'm sure you recognize that from William Shakespeare. But isn't that a selfish position? Now, here's where this gets a little tricky Theologically, isn't that a selfish position? Just know thyself and to thine own self be true. I mean, isn't that more like Popeye's theology? I am what I am. Well, it has a lot of basis in Christian thought as well. But aren't we taught as Christians to forget ourselves, to serve others instead? I mean, even as a humanitarian, isn't the best, most honorable thing to just forget about yourself and serve others? How can you best serve others? Can you best serve others when you're resentful at being deprived of joy in your own life? Or is it when you're in your zone, when you're seeing the convergence of all the unique ways that God has made you? You know, as a life coach, I I have the privilege of walking through times of transition with a lot of really interesting people, as you hear, you know, week after week and the questions that are submitted Working with Bill, obviously I'll change his name, but let's say it's Bill, a 36-year-old physician. He's 80 pounds overweight on massive medication for depression and anger control. His parents moved here from another country along with his sister. 
when he was eight years old. Parents gave up their lives so their children would have the best of everything. Now, Bill resisted in every way he could their desire to have him go to medical school. But it's a great dishonor in his culture not to follow your parents' wishes. They pleaded, begged, and used guilt to coerce him into following that path. Now, a recent issue of Fast Company talked about the academic system in China. And it talked about students preparing for college. High school students, they prepare for what's called the GECO. It's the National College Entrance Exam, which is seen, this is a quote from the magazine article, that college prep exam is seen as the gateway to success in life. The GECO, this is a quote, rewards a special kind of student, very strong memory, very strong logical and analytical ability, little imagination, little desire to question authority. Students prepare for the GECO. Now listen to this. By rising before dawn to be at school by 7.30, six days a week. They get out of school at 5.30, and after school let out, the expectation is that he or she will study at least five hours more. Now we sometimes hear about we're falling behind Japan and China and Thailand in academic standing. We need to be careful about what academic standing really tells us. Standardized tests are in fact that. They are standardized tests. Do you really want to be known for being able to regurgitate information knowledge and information and you may win it of who wants to make a million dollars whatever what is that tv show um or you could be on jeopardy to spit out facts but is is that really what's going to make somebody successful in today's environment again i I said that these tests that the students are taking reward a special kind of student very strong memory very strong logical and analytical ability, little imagination, little desire to question authority. Well, frankly, I want my children to learn how to think imaginatively, how to dream, how to explore, how to be innovative. I'm not as concerned about their ability to regurgitate facts and figures. Okay. Let me get back to my story. So today, Bill is, in fact, a doctor, very prestigious doctor with advanced degrees beyond his MD. But what do you think? Do you think he thinks that he's sitting in fresh water with a lot of opportunities? No, he is convinced he's in salt water. He's trapped with no choices to help him escape the nightmare of his life. Do you think our primary concern should be with me working him with him as a coach? I mean, how he can adjust to the demands of a daily medical practice, how to convince himself he's making the world a better place? No. And fortunately, he realizes this is his window of opportunity to step back and take a fresh look, to recognize he's not trapped. And maybe it's time to look inward rather than outward. We know there are plenty of opportunities for doctors. That's a no-brainer. But what if that's not a fit? Know thyself and to thine own self be true. Now, is this just a, a secular or worldly concept to know yourself and be true to yourself? Is there anything that supports that kind of thinking in the Bible? Well, I already kind of alluded to that. What if we look at a verse, a popular verse like Proverbs 22, 6, that says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. 
Now, the word there that we translate into train up means to initiate or dedicate or consecrate. So when we have then the phrase in the way he should go, it means in the tenor of his way, according to his disposition, in line with his talents, his personality, his character. Uh, another way to say that would be to say, train up a child in the way that he or she is bent. So we've misused that verse a lot, and a lot of well-meaning parents have misused that to superimpose godly principles, cram things down their kids' throats, assuming they'll grow up to be godly giants, only to discover they grow up to be rebellious and uh, desert the teachings. Well, what if we, as parents, were faithful in helping our child figure out how is he or she bent to help them develop in the way that matches how God has gifted them in terms of character, tenor, personality, attitude, those kind of things. Guess what happens when they grow up? They find that that's an authentic fit. They thrive within that. Back in 48 Days to the Work You Love, I talk a lot about Fulfilling work must blend three things. Number one, your skills and abilities. Number two, your personality traits. Number three, your values, dreams, and passions. See, the value, the challenge for us as parents is to find that unique bent of our children. Rather than superimposing rigid standards to be applied indiscriminately, we have to find each child's temperament and allow for the individualization of that child's personality and passions. Then, if a child receives that kind of personalized affirmation, they will then experience dignity, respect, and responsibility that will give them a healthy sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. And like I said, guess what? When they're old, they'll not depart from it. Now, that's kind of a different twist on that verse. But see, there's a lot of tie-in with our theology and with doing work that is fulfilling, work that we love, work that matters. Now let's go back to Bill, our physician friend. Did Bill's parents affirm his uniqueness? Did they sacrifice so he could be the man God designed him to be? No. Unfortunately, what appears on the surface to be serving and giving was in fact extremely selfish and controlling and cruel. They forced him to do what was important to them crushing his uniqueness in the process. They attempted to make his life what they had hoped their own would be and ending up with a highly resentful, angry child. A lot of you may kind of identify with that. I mean, even if it wasn't your parents, a lot of, I encounter a lot of people who at 45 years old have realized they're living somebody else's dream, not their own. There are a lot of shoulds that float around in our culture. Even if it's apart from a strict religious background, just the shoulds that are given to us by well-meaning friends, leaders, teachers, school systems, things that we should do. But again, please hear me. This is not about being selfish or egotistical in any way. It's about being our very best, releasing the very best that God has birthed inside us and the idea of knowing ourselves i mean i tell people all the time 85 percent of the process of having the confidence of proper direction in your career comes from looking inward 
comes from looking inward first. 15% then is the application. And frankly, that's the easier part. But if you ignore that part, you're likely to end up with a short-term solution and long-term frustration. Look inward. Now, my dad was a pastor. And I talk about that a lot in my writings. You probably have heard parts of my story. But as such, he had some very clear guidelines about training up his children. We don't dance, and we don't chew, and we don't go with girls that do. I mean, we had all kinds of little ditties that we used to say, and knowing that, hey, my dad was a pastor, and there were a whole lot of things we didn't do. My dad was a master of doing the right things, and not in releasing his uniqueness or embracing the personalized characteristics of his children, but in doing the right things. It didn't matter if my sisters wanted to be out in the barn watching a sheep give birth to baby lambs. That's not what girls do. They stay in the house and cook and clean. It didn't matter if I wanted to read a book on a Saturday night. There were chores to be done, and that was the right, responsible thing to do. And when my dad was 91 years old, I asked him about his call to preach. Now, keep in mind, I never knew anything but my dad being a preacher. He was bivocational, so... You know, being in a Mennonite denomination, he wasn't paid for pastoring a church. We had to create our own living, so we were farmers, but he was a pastor, and that's what he was best known for. And I certainly assumed all of my life that he was called, that he experienced some kind of mountaintop experience, road to Damascus experience, supernatural, bolt of lightning, something. So when he was 91, I asked him about his call to preach. He replied immediately, I never had a call. I just did what everyone else expected me to do. I mean, I was blown away. I was dumbfounded. But perhaps that provides some explanation for the frustration I saw in his pastoring. It was not a release into what he was bent to do, but a capitulation to simply doing what was right. Being both a pastor and a farmer we're doing what was right. Neither was an authentic fit. I mean, as I think back about it, you know, I, I see indications that he was just struggling to do what was right. Now, he was a master at doing that, but it was still just a process of doing what was right. When my dad was 38 years old, now I never heard this from my dad. I heard this from one of my first cousins. I mean, only a couple years ago, when my dad was 38 years old, he attended a church near Buffalo, New York. That church heard that there was a little Mennonite church in Ohio that needed a pastor. The church leaders selected four young men in that church. They simply selected four upstanding young men of integrity. They put four straws in the Bible and had each one draw a straw. Guess who got the short straw? Yeah, you're right. My dad got the short straw and thus became the next pastor of that little church. Now, you've all heard about, you know, getting the short straw. That literally happened to my dad and shaped the next 60 years of his life. Now, again, if you're familiar with um, Bible history, you can go back and see times when they cast lots in the Bible where what we would look at as just being a the luck of the draw or rolling the dice even they 
would consider that God guides that as well as everything else. So you can put four straws and four young guys' names on them, draw one, and that's God's divine providence. It's God's will. Well, that's a topic for another day. Do you know, I recently read somewhere that the Bible is less a book that tells us what to do than it is a story that tells us who we are. So if we read it, just a historical book, that's one thing, but if we read it as a story to help us understand, I mean, if we read about David and Goliath, Okay, so we read about this little boy and he threw a stone and it whacked the big giant right between his helmet protection, you know, and killed him. Well, the real message is not just to see that as a historical story and try to decide how tall David was and how tall Goliath was. The real message to me is, what is the Goliath in my own life that I'm fearful about? And even though I see something as really being intimidating or fear, what's the weak spot in that where I do have the skills to overcome that? I mean, that's the message to me, but that's a very different kind of biblical understanding than, than what a lot of American children have grown up with. So the t- challenge as parents is to discover the temperament, the personality, the unique gifting of our children and release them into a life that embraces and blends those things. Then they will be engaged in work and a life that is meaningful, purposeful, fulfilling, and profitable. Here's another Christian teaching challenge. I'm going to jump in some deep water here, I know. I would never talk about this in a church, and certainly not in a corporate presentation, but you know, you all in my listening audience are a unique group. I know you represent a wide, wide variety of church experiences and backgrounds, so I'm just going to ask for your tolerance for my train of thought here. And every denomination tries to replicate in its children the beliefs and practices of that denomination. So if you're Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalian, Catholic, Church of Christ, or Pentecostal, you have clear expectations and find those in leadership teaching the principles popular in those strains of Christianity. Now here's an example. How do you need to be baptized to have done it correctly? Now, I've had a pretty ecumenical journey, so I'm probably more covered than any one of you out there listening to this. My dad, again, was a Mennonite pastor, so at about 12 years old, I was baptized by pouring, okay, a little water in a pitcher and pour on top of my head. Now, in retrospect, in looking back, I suspect the method had more to do with economics than it did theology. Anyway, then Joanne and I got married in a Grace Brethren Fellowship. They required that we be baptized again for membership there. That time I went down in the water, the water three times, down three times. It's called triune immersion. Down once the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In California, we were part of a community church and were baptized again just to have membership there. Another immersion in Bowling Green, Kentucky, where I did my graduate work in clinical psychology, we were part of um, Southern Baptist Church, and be, to be a member there, we had to be baptized in a Baptist church. So another baptism. Once down was adequate there, but it had to be the Baptist way, their tank, their water. Then we joined an Assembly of God church. Um, th- th- they, didn't, they didn't really care, just come on in. It wasn't a big deal, their baptism, because it was more the ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit that they talked about, not as much emphasis on baptism. Then we moved to Nashville and joined a large church there. And they again wanted baptism for membership there. And that was once down 
and in the name of Jesus only. Another very unique perspective, both in terms of method and how they framed the theology. It was in the name of Jesus only. Uh, Since then, we've been members of a little country Methodist church just across the cow path from our house. And again, since we missed the the being baptized as infants, I guess they just took our word that we were already Christians and it wasn't, wasn't a big deal. And it's not just baptism, but think about all the different things, all the litany of practices that identify any denomination, and they're all convinced that they're right. And we shape children based on those things that we believe to be right. Now, we talk a lot about personality styles around here. I'm sure you've heard me mention the DISC personalities, you know, that stands for dominance, influencing, steadiness, and compliant. Maybe you've taken our 48 Days Personality Profile. It's the hottest selling product we have outselling even my books. Those differences mean you are wired differently. I mean, some people are quick to make decisions. Some like to gather lots of information and are not as expressive, not as boisterous. Some are party animals and some are quiet and introspective. Some of you are better with ideas and things, preferring not even to be around people. So we have a lot of different personalities. What if you have different personalities even in one family? Have you ever seen that? Well, sure you have. I mean, if you come up from a family of five children, you recognize you may have in that family somebody who's very dominant, somebody who's really outgoing, somebody who's really loyal, a tender heart, just wants to help others, compassionate, good listener, somebody who's very good with details, wants to make sure the checkbook is just right. I mean, that's in, within one family. Could it be possible that in the same family, recognized in the uniqueness of children, that you would have one child more prone to be a Methodist? one an Episcopalian, one a Pentecostal, one denominational. Now, I know this is really stretching, but if we are going to embrace the uniqueness, we have to realize that even those denominational trains tend to attract people who have similar bents, similar personalities. And if we give the freedom to embrace Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way that he or she is bent, we really ought to have the freedom, give our children the liberty to perhaps choose a different denomination. And in doing so, it may affirm their faithfulness in a Christian walk rather than the rejection where it appears to be a rejection of everything they were taught. It may be a rejection of the particular personality of the congregation that they grew up in. Let me throw another hot potato out there. And this, believe me, if, if this is over the top for you in terms of your interest in the material that I normally present, I don't blame you at all. You can stop listening and go do something else. Let me throw another hot potato out there if you're still with me. What if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here in our virtual listening room But I'd be interested to know how many of you have had the evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. 
that being in Pentecostal circles speaking in tongues. How many adults are walking around with the frustration that they never quite got it? You know, they never quite lost consciousness and had someone else take over their tongue. But I think we could agree that the understanding of being filled with the Holy Spirit is that, you know, we get out of the way of our intellect and allow God to move through us in an almost inexplicable way. And when we do that, the door of the imagination is open. And what if we explored that a little further? What happens when a Vincent Van Gogh sits down with a blank canvas, a jar of brushes, and a palette of paint? How does he blend those inanimate objects into something that stirs the soul with images and sounds and feelings for anyone who sees it? I mean, take some of the popular writers. I mean, I already talked about John Maxwell. And John was a pastor, found that one area of passion for him was leadership, how to develop leaders, how to be an effective leader. He's built his entire life and career around that one principle. No longer is a pastor of a church, but he speaks at major conferences. He has other leaders there. And he brings in people in the business world to speak at his conferences. And he develops books. He's written multiple, multiple books on leadership I mean, how does a Max Lucado take common words, but then he weaves them together in his masterful storytelling way to bring to life worthy principles and ways of living? I mean, is he just a good author, or is he manifesting his unique spiritual language that God has given him? I mean, what's happening when, when I have uh, Terry Brasher come out to my place? Now, a lot of you have heard me talk about Aristotle here in my property where we had a, a cedar tree that did not come back to life. And so I had Terry, who's a wood sculptor, come out here. And I said, Terry, I'm convinced there's an eagle trying to get out of that tree. And she walked around it for about 20 minutes, not saying very much. And finally she said, Dan, I think you're right. She came out, set up scaffolding. The tree at that time, I had not topped it yet, but we topped it about 14 feet off the ground. So the wings of the eagle are the first two primary branches that went out from the cedar tree. They're wider than the base, so it could not have been positioned in any other way, but she sculpted this magnificent eagle out of what was a dead cedar tree. If you haven't seen that yet, please go to 48days.com. There are links on there where you can see it, a picture of the sanctuary, where it is now this stunning piece of art in front of my office. I mean, what is she doing when she does that? Could that sculpting to release an eagle out of a dead tree be her spiritual language? She may never speak in tongues like what is framed in particular denominations, but could that be her spiritual language? It goes beyond her ability to express in words goes beyond anything that she could write or say. For her, that is her spiritual language. When I have a Terry Wakefield come out here and say, Terry, I want a water feature here in front of my house. I want something that reminds me of being out in the country, being back in the farm. I don't want something chlorinated, sanitized. I want something that is just like a mountain stream. 
where it runs off a cliff at the top, then down through a little creek bed into a pool below, and it circulates back up. Now, I had multiple engineers come out here, landscape designers come out here, and they very carefully showed me where each bush would be, where each stone would be, and it looked like something that you would go to a store and buy. Terry Wakefield came out here, took one look at the space. He says, oh my gosh, this is a perfect space. He says, I have no idea what it's going to look like, but it'll be spectacular. I said, you're the guy. You're the guy I want to do this. You're a guy who is not just using analytical skills. You're an artist. You have an ability to make something come to life as you do it. Guess what? That's your spiritual language. I mean, even even when I, where do I get the inspiration in looking at this old barn on our property to begin seeing a place where people could come as a retreat center to experience the calm of being away from asphalt and concrete in a place we now call the sanctuary. Could it be possible that all these people are communicating with spiritual languages that normal human language does not have the words to express? Is it a stretch to say that maybe art, music, dance, theater, literature, sculpting, uh, designing innovative technology, writing, inspiring people with dramatic storytelling like Andy Andrews does, showing empathy with someone on the phone when you don't have the intellect to solve their problem? Is it a stretch to think that those are all examples of speaking in tongues? I mean, I guess sometimes I share glimpses of how I view work, why I think work is so important because when I see somebody's work, it tells me more about them than where they went to school, what degree they got. Tells me who they are, reveals the bears their soul to me. It lets me know about that person. We can't separate our work from having it be a way that shows our inner being, that shows our soul. Whatever it is that you're doing, that's why I talk so much about the work that you do. It ought to put you in the zone. I mean, we talk about athletes being in the zone. It's kind of when everything just comes together. I mean, there ought to be times in your own work where you recognize that. I mean, those are the things that more and more you can see as patterns to help you clarify. What is it that puts you in the zone? Finding work that matters, finding work that you love is not just a matter of choosing something in college. It's a popular area for hiring. So I'll be a computer programmer because I hear there are a lot of jobs there. That's a horrible way to choose a life's work. That's why I give people a lot of flexibility in the early years, even in terms of choosing what they major in in college. I don't really care. Going to college doesn't force you into a rut from which there's no escape. I mean, you can go to college. I mean, work as a greeter at Walmart. I don't care. I'll be a NASCAR race car driver. Just do a variety of things. But then you know what? That's why I prefer to work with people who are about 45, 50 years old, maybe even older than that, because we have the luxury of looking back on some life experiences where we start to see those emerging patterns. We start to see where were those times when you really knew you were in your zone. And from looking at those, then we can start to say, all right, 
What if we, rather than expecting you to be in your zone, 5% of the time identified or created a work environment where you were in your zone 95% of the time? That's when you move to a higher level of fulfillment, meaning purpose and accomplishment. And guess what else happens? Money shows up in unexpected ways. And this is one of the ironies of this whole kind of thinking. Sometimes we think, again, thinking scarcity and thinking that work is a curse. We think, well, sure, I enjoy playing golf or growing dandelions or making cheesecakes, whatever it happens to be. But if I did that, then I'd have to learn to you know, be poor. Because I'm, it, we, we, we assume that it's a trade-off. If you enjoy your work, you don't make any money. If you want to make money, then do something that you hate. Well, where did we get that thinking? What kind of whacked philosophy is that? And trust me, from experience, I will assure you it's a whole lot easier to make money doing something you love than trying to be responsible doing something you hate. I mean, what happens when you design a killer web page, if that's your skill, that draws people in, makes them want to be part of what's happening at your company? I mean, you may be one of the quiet ones. What happens when you have a discouraged caller on the phone? I, mean, I was talking to Dave Ramsey's organization recently, and they spend a lot of their time, a lot of them talking to people who call in because they're in desperate situations because of what's happened financially and along that with comes discouragement depression frustration anger all those things what happened if when you're talking to somebody like that on a phone and you just seem to find the right words to say i mean and afterward you may scratch your head and openly question where did that come from how did i have the wisdom to say what i just said to walk a person through that discouraging time and give them hope and encouragement and inspiration that they needed well perhaps God gave you your heavenly language in just that moment. I mean, when people come up to you and thank you for the landscaping job you just did or for the way you finished the woodworking in their house or for those special cupcakes that you brought for the family reunion, are they just recipients of good work or did they encounter one of you who were using your spiritual gifts? I mean, our work is best is our best opportunity to live out our calling in every way. I mean, none of us are limited. We're just not limited to using only our intellect, our education and knowledge. Our work encompasses much more than that. Now you've probably heard me talk about one of my favorite quotations from James Mishner, where we talk about blending work and play, blending it in a way so that Others looking in can't really tell what you're doing. I joked about that recently. We had a, a big crowd here for our, our re- recent Right to the Bank event. And I said, you know, if you followed me around for a day, you'd have difficulty determining whether I was working or playing. I mean, because the things that I do blend both. And I'm confident that you can do the same. I mean, our work is where we should get our greatest sense of peace, accomplishment, and joy. I mean, this idea that we work because we're responsible, we get a paycheck, we just bite the bullet and do it, and then we get out of there, and then we go home, hopefully where there would be some peace and serenity and a sense of joy and accomplishment. Well, what if we got those things in our work? I mean, I I cringe when I hear people talk about retirement. I hear people 
talk with pride that they're 53 years old and they're retired. And I'm like, interesting. What are you doing? Well, nothing. I just get up and I do nothing. You know how quickly those people deteriorate physically? How often we hear stories about somebody six months later is dead? No physical calamity. We can't survive without a purpose to what we do daily. And if what we do daily primarily is work, then for goodness sake, let's make it something that is meaningful, that's purposeful. Getting a paycheck is not enough reward for doing work. It has to go way beyond that. And our work is, obviously, if you are interested in doing something humanitarian and godly and worthwhile and all that, our work is our greatest opportunity for true ministry. We should accept the challenge to use our strongest skills and talents in our daily work. And we'll experience that sweet spot we all crave when we recognize and embrace our spiritual gifts as well. I had somebody recently ask me what I thought about being a priest or a nun. Now, I'm really not sure. I mean, it was just a a written question. And I'm really not sure where the listener was coming from. But I said, well, I don't have any sense of calling to poverty and celibacy in my own life trust me if you're called to that if you really feel a call to that then do it with excellence but i also don't see that as a higher calling than a lot of other things so if you're called to be a priest or a nun fantastic do it with excellence but if you're called to be a school teacher or a landscaper or a stay-at-home mom or an attorney or an engineer or a computer programmer then do those with excellence. Those are equally as unique, special calls from God and opportunities for ministry. So it's not like any of us are left out. The only way you get left out, if you haven't taken the time to figure out what your unique place, your unique call and purpose is, and so you're doing work that you know has no purpose other than giving you a paycheck. Yeah, you're, you're left out of the opportunity for ministry. It's hard to make that anything if that's the way that you view it, anything more than just a paycheck. But you can be somebody who's a builder. I have a friend who is a home builder. and I mean, he is a home builder as opposed to just a construction guy or a house builder. He works with the people to identify what kind of environment they want this to be. Not just are the boards straight, is the paint neatly trimmed out? No, what do you want to experience in this building that we're building where you're going to spend a significant amount of your time? They build a home. We had recently a group of people here and we had on the last night of an event, we usually have people come over to our house for dessert. Had a, a lady who walked in went right over to one corner of our living room and just started weeping. And I, I wasn't in the room at the time, but somebody else, a couple others went over and said, wow, what's wrong? You know, what, what happened? Can we help you? She said, oh, I'm okay. She said, I've never walked into a room where I felt so much love before. Well, let's walk into our living room. I mean, we have, it's not a ostentatious house, but it's, it's decorated. There's a sense of peace in being there. We have people comment on that all the time. We want that in our home. That's very unique for us, very special, very important. We don't want it to just be a roof over our heads and a place to sleep. It's our home. But in the same way, I want my work to be just as fulfilling, just as meaningful as the place that I live. 
my granddaughter just celebrated her fourth birthday. She's very clear on where she's going. If you ask her where, what she's going to do when she grows up, she'll tell you, I'm going to change the world. I mean, how many of you at four years old had a dream? You know, maybe in the still of the night, then you thought you heard God speaking, calling you to a certain type of life and a special kind of work. So what happened? Well, I know life happened along the way in our desire to grow up and be responsible adults. Too many of those of us who were wildly imaginative kids lost touch with our creative abilities, our spiritual shaping, and gave up on our commitment of translating those dreams into enjoyable and fulfilling work. But it doesn't need to be that way. All of us, no matter how old we are or what kind of work we're doing, can learn to bring that authentic, childlike creativity to our work. In, in fact, you know, I think the moment you express a desire for something more than repetitive, meaningless work, something more than simply punching a clock, the moment you realize that meaningful, purposeful, and profitable work really is a possibility, you've already taken an important step toward reawakening the dreams and passions of your childhood. All of a sudden, complacency and comfortable misery become intolerable. The idea of putting your calling on the shelf becomes intolerable. Not only do we have the opportunity, we have the responsibility to spend our working hours in work that will elevate us to our highest calling and transform the world around us. We can find ways to express our hopes and dreams in our daily work. While I certainly don't advocate confusing who we are with what we do, I do believe that our work can be our best gift to ourselves, our friends and family, our communities, and the best expression of our purpose here on earth. Given the amount of time we spend working, failure to be in meaningful, significant work is not just a minor misstep in leaving out God's plan. It's a deeper kind of failure that can make each day feel like living death. That's no surprise that people out there often choose to dismiss work's importance by reducing it to a necessary evil that merely provides a paycheck. But as long as they view work as simply something they have to do to pay the bills, they keep themselves from embracing their talents and gifts, from recognizing their visions, dreams, and passions. I'm going to wrap up my thoughts here. You know, fulfilling work, work that integrates our talents and passions, work done for a worthy purpose, has always been a sign of inner and outer maturity and wisdom. Here's what Cahil Gibran said about work. He said, work is love made visible. And if you cannot work with love, but only with this taste, it is better that you should leave your work and sit at the gate of the temple and take alms of those who work with joy. For if you bake bread with indifference, you bake a bitter bread that feeds but half man's hunger. And if you grudge the crushing of the grapes, your grudge distills a poison in the wine. And if you sing though as angels and love not the singing, you muffle man's ears to the voices of the day and the voices of the night. Is your work, love, made visible? Now, I know this listening audience is full of creative people. Most of you recognize the mismatch many people face each day when they go to work. Those people who think work is nothing more than exchanging time for a paycheck. Well, I pray that you will know yourself, that you'll embrace your uniqueness, that you'll recognize your spiritual language as perhaps an unexpected secret advantage for understanding and living out your calling. This above all, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night the day, thou canst not then be false to any man. 
Well, I know this has been an unusual direction for the podcast. I'll go back to answering questions again, but this encompasses a whole lot of the common questions that I receive. Thanks for your tolerance in letting me take this direction for this one. I appreciate you being part of the growing family of people who are finding or creating work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. 